0: This is an ABC podcast. The first thing we try and do is tag that whale, which is very difficult. And so to tag a whale, you need to get extremely close and you put a suction cup acoustic tag on using a long pole. And the good thing about humpbacks is they're migrating. So they tend to pick a direction and pick a speed.
1: A research project on the Sunshine Coast is giving whales a hearing test as researchers try to measure what frequency whales can hear and from how far away. And in Ballarat, a new mobile accommodation setup modelled on a Japanese pod hotel is being rolled out for people who are sleeping rough. The amount of people that we can't offer accommodation
2: to, this is going to be a fantastic option for them. And I believe that a lot of our rough sleepers will
1: take up this option with, with open arms. Hi, I'm Gianfranco Di Giovanni, coming to you from Wajuk country, and this is Australia Wide. Yesterday, the WA government moved to repeal a controversial law, a law that allows for the indefinite detention of people who are deemed too mentally impaired to stand trial, or... convicted of a crime it's a law that's received criticism from the united nations and advocates for mental health saying it breaches the rights of people with disabilities our reporter alicia bridges has been following this story hi alicia can you tell me what are the criticisms that advocacy groups have been calling of the law as it stands
3: well the main criticism is that people who haven't been convicted of crimes can currently be detained without any end date Uh, it's unlimited so Decisions on whether or not they should be released are currently made by a review board, but those decisions can be overruled by the Attorney General. So in many cases, people end up in jail, Uh, they're there without any kind of you know, horizon. They don't know when they'll be released. I mean, there there are technically supposed to be places for these people to to spend that time in detention um, that is is not in a jail cell, um, but those facilities are full. There's a couple of facilities in Perth, uh, Franklin, and the Disability Justice Centre, um, but for various reasons, there's no room. Um, there's also a lack of avenues for appeal uh, to to challenge um, a, a detention, a case of being held in indefinite detention. So. For advocates, it's become a matter of rights for people with disabilities and why people with mental impairment shouldn't have the same avenues to make their case and fight to be released.
1: In some circumstances, this has been even longer than potential charges for crimes that could be convicted for as well, isn't it?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are cases where people have been held in detention for uh, up to or over 10 years. Uh, there's a the case of Mar- Marlon Noble, an Indigenous man who was held for more than a decade. And ultimately, in his case, the United, Na- United Nations deemed that the WA government had breached its responsibilities um, under the Convention of Rights. Uh, for people with disabilities.
1: What has been the reaction from campaigners who have been working to get this law replaced?
3: Well, it's been very well received. There are people who fought very hard for this. Uh, So there's a lot of excitement. Margaret Doherty is the founder and chairperson of Mental Health Matters 2. And she started fighting this law after one of her family members were affected.
4: I watched it yesterday. Um, I was getting texts all the way through from other um, people who've been involved in this long-term journey of advocating for this particular piece of legislative review um, through it going, wow, what do you think? Sounds good so far. <laughs> wow, can you believe it? You know, So it, it's one of those moments where you just have to drink it in because there's been, for us and I know for others and for others who've been involved probably even longer than we have, it's been 11 years.
1: What are some of the alternatives that are proposed uh, instead of putting people into jail while they're awaiting their time in court?
3: Yeah, so there are currently, I guess, three alternatives. So the first one is for those people to be, um, at the, at the Franklin Centre Forensic, uh, facility, which is a mental health hospital, um, They're not technically supposed to be there for a long time. They're supposed to be there for treatment. But what ends up happening is because there's no end date, uh, they remain in that facility, um, they also can be held at the disability justice center. Uh, it's called Bennett Brook, um, that was created in 2015, but that facility is regularly, um, you know, that it has 10, 10 beds and there are usually between two and three people in there. And that's because it's so restrictive in terms of who they allow to be in that facility. So. The end result is that those people are in jail unless they can find a way to be released on a community supervision order. And this change, the proposed new bill would make it easier uh, to to spend that time in the community rather than being in, a, in a, a detention facility.
1: What are the major changes to the law? Is it mostly about those alternative options uh, for people who are in that circumstance?
3: It's primarily about putting an end date on the amount of time that someone should be detained. Under the new law, there will be an end date in every situation. So the judge will have to make a decision on how long that person should be detained. And that decision will be based on how long they would typically sentence a person if they were convicted. So the person still won't be convicted of a crime, but at least there will be uh, an an end time for for when that person should be um, released from detention and be able to live in the community again.
1: What's the next stage?
3: The next stage is the WA government is uh, uh, working to implement all of these changes. Basically, they'll have to um, work with all the stakeholders to make sure that they can actually deliver these changes. There are going to be new types of court proceedings, new types of hearings, um, an expansion of the mental health advocacy service, uh, and then ensuring that people who are able to be detained or supervised in the community have the supports that they need to you know, to succeed in that situation.
1: Alicia, thank you so much for giving us an update. You're welcome. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. And my name is John Franco Di Giovanni in for Sinead Mangan today to regional Victoria now. We're in Ballarat on any given night. There are more than 60 people sleeping rough in tents, caravans, cars, or couch surfing. Temperatures in Ballarat frequently plunge below zero on winter nights, but by next winter, there'll be a new option in town offering a safe, warm night's sleep. From Ballarat, reporter Rochelle Kirkham has his story.
5: It was 2015 when Simon Rowe faced a turning point. He was walking in Melbourne when he came across a man trying to sleep on the street. He describes as the tiredest man he had ever seen in his life. He cried when telling his kids about the experience later that night.
2: Obviously it affected me and then my kids dropped the hammer and they said, oh, you need to do something about this, Dad. I started researching and tried to figure out what I might be able to do.
5: Mr Rose says he had no intention of starting a charity, but after a year of research, including sleeping in a homeless shelter, he couldn't move past the gaping hole in the system, a lack of safe sleeping options.
2: I stayed in a shelter which was like a 50 mattresses on a floor in a big hall and it was the scariest night I'd ever had and I thought how can I give people a safe place to sleep and I started looking around the world at all different solutions and I just couldn't find anything that was cheap. And and that could, you could do it quickly, it's all bricks and mortar stuff and that costs millions of dollars. And then I came across a Japanese pod hotel and I thought, well, wow, that's an amazing use of space. I love the little sleep pods. And then I was looking through a photo album and came across an old motorhome that I did up with my mates when I was in my 20s and so I put the two together and that's how Sleep Bus was born. So we put the sleep pods in a bus.
5: Mr Rowe started purchasing buses and fitting them out with sleeping pods that are lockable and climate controlled. Sleep Bus has been operating in Queenbeyan Canberra and Maroochydore with new projects launching in Byron Bay and Harvey Bay and a second bus from Maroochydore in January. And a new bus for Ballarat will be next after a group of community leadership program participants, including Bikara Gazanas, raised $100,000 in just six months to bring the service to town. We're so proud. I think at the
6: moment we're all a little bit speechless. We didn't think it would happen this quickly. We had all agreed that we would stick on to the project as long as it took. And to be honest, we thought we'd be going into 2023 and 2024. The community spirit, I feel, is at an all-time high. And the conversation about homelessness is being had in places that it wasn't before. Homelessness doesn't discriminate. It's not something that's expected. A lot of people can find themselves in a really hard position really quickly. And I think that was really evident over COVID. Living costs are rising. It's so easy to kind of fall down that slippery slope and end up in a position that's something you're not used to and something
5: that you're not sure how to navigate out of. A sleep bus is expected to arrive in Ballarat, a city of about 110,000 people, before next winter. Ballarat homelessness support workers say they are looking forward to being able to offer the new service as an option to clients, as the current situation is heartbreaking. Uniting Ballarat manager Adam Liversidge says sometimes the only option for staff is to hand out tents because there is little to no affordable accommodation available.
2: We've still got rush sleepers uh, sleeping in tents. We're handing out a lot of tents almost daily here from Uniting. A lot of people are couch surfing, sleeping in their cars. A lot of people in in caravans as well sleeping in uh, free camping grounds.
5: Mr Liversidge says bringing a sleep bus to town will mean support workers can offer a safe option to clients for the night's sleep.
2: The amount of people that we do turn away, the amount of people that we can't offer accommodation to, this is going to be a fantastic option for them and I believe a lot of our rough sleepers will take up this option with with open arms.
5: Compassionate Ballarat group member Mary Hollick has been another key driver of the Ballarat Sleep Bus project and will continue working to bring the project to life.
7: Our requirements now are an easily accessible parking location. We need access to a fire hydrant and a depot location for the bus to be housed through the day, but we will need community volunteers to assist with the actual manning of the bus, which is going to operate 365 days a year. But I have every confidence that that will all flow from the kindness of our community.
5: Mr Rowe says it's fantastic to see communities like Ballarat rally together to address big issues.
2: It's a double-edged sword for me because, one, it's fantastic that people like my idea and think it can help, but then on the flip side, it's awful that we need Sleep Bus. It shouldn't exist. We should have affordable housing. We should have better solutions. We literally have a slogan on the side of of each Sleep Bus that says it's not okay to let someone sleep on the street. That's why we're doing something about it. And that's what the Ballarat community is doing. They're doing something about it. And I hope that Sleep Bus will be the catalyst for more things so that it will help highlight what's going on and we will get more funding for affordable housing in the area and Sleep Bus will no longer be required. Required. that's the best thing that's the goal is the sleep bus not to be
1: required that's sleep bus founder simon rowe ending that story from rochelle kirkham <laughs> to queensland now where a research project on the sunshine coast is giving whales a hearing test the project aims to measure what frequencies whales can hear and from how far away so that audio protections can be established owen jacques has the story
2: what you're hearing sounds like it's from another world, but it's actually just beneath the waves off the Sunshine Coast. It's the sound of singing whales, snapping shrimp, which sound a whole lot like a sizzling barbecue, and amongst it all are some strange other noises going up and down in pitch. It's these noises that scientists from the University of Queensland are using to test their hearing of humpback whales as they migrate along the coastline north of Coulomb. Associate Professor Dr Rebecca Dunlop heads the project.
0: When it comes to baling whales, we don't know a lot um, because they are big and very difficult to work with. We've never gone out and actually tested their hearing because they're, they're huge, it's, it's difficult to do. The way that we've set it up is that we have a team of volunteers on the hill and they track a group of whales as it moves down the coast so I can see what they're seeing essentially. I can follow the track of the whale. The first thing we try and do is tag that whale, which is very difficult. And so to tag a whale, you need to get extremely close and you put a suction cup acoustic tag on using a long pole. And the good thing about humpbacks is they're migrating. So they tend to pick a direction and pick a speed. So you can quite accurately predict where they're gonna end up in six kilometers down the coast. I direct the source vessel to go there. The source vessel sits there. And then as they swim to about four and a half kilometers from that source vessel the the signal gets turned on and then we literally just wait and see what they do and usually it takes a little bit you know they they might stop they might have a little bit of a listen they might deviate their course a little bit and once they've done that then we assume that they've heard the signal and then we make lots and lots of acoustic measurements and then we measure the noise, we measure the level at which they heard that signal and we do it over and over and over again with lots of different frequencies and at the end of the day we should have some idea of their frequency range and sensitivity. It's no new news that um, we're putting a lot of noise into the ocean. Naval sonar, we've got oil and gas industry with seismic surveys, we've got wind farm developments with pile driving, we've got shipping and of course we need to develop mitigation around those activities. So we need to develop policies to say, look, you know, they can hear this to this far away and to mitigate for any negative effects, we need to reduce the noise by this much or that much. And the fundamental piece of data to developing those policies is what a whale can hear. And that's the very piece that we're actually missing.
2: Professor Michael Node is on the boat up ahead, playing noises to the whales so researchers can see how they react.
8: The sort of sound we play is just a little tone that just goes up a little bit. It's almost like a little sort of whistle that goes up. And it's the sort of sound that they wouldn't necessarily hear normally underwater. And so what we think is happening from the whale's point of view is that they hear this and they're not quite sure what it is. It doesn't sound particularly threatening or anything. It's just that it's, it's an unusual sound for them. And that's why they hesitate and just have a little you, you know, a little listen to try and work out what the sound is, where it is. A lot of the time after they do that hesitation, they then just swim straight past the boat where we're playing the, the sound from. So it, it, it certainly doesn't worry the whales terribly much. We've been working at Pridgin for a long time. We've, we've been, we've actually been working there for, well, it's more than 20 years now. So one of the big advantages for us working there is that we've got a very good handle on the behaviour of the whales as they move down the coast, because we've we've done so much work there. So so Perigian is a great place for us to work um, because, of, because we know so much about the underlying whale behaviour as they move down the coast. Um, so it's a, it, it really is a perfect sort of experimental spot for this sort of work.
1: That's University of Queensland Professor Michael Node speaking to Owen Jacques. Staying in Queensland now, Diane Loopy earned herself a place in the Women's Museum of Australia for being the first woman to compete against men in open bull riding. Women weren't allowed to compete in the male-dominated sport and Diane had to pretend to be a man just to compete in the early years. ABC Far North reporter Amanda Cranston has this story.
6: So when I was 11, I'd met these people at the poultry farm and these people let me use their horse, a, a Brumby, which was named Megaton. But this lady, Liz Johnson, she sort of took me under her wing and she asked me if I wanted to go to Peaceful Valley Rodeo. So, of course, I jumped at the chance and she asked me if I wanted to go in the potty ride and I jumped at that chance too. But it was a boys' potty ride but I didn't think that would matter at that age. And I ended up winning the potty ride. And when they called me out, they just called out the number and they asked me what my name was. And I said, Diane Lucas. And they said, are you a girl? So then they didn't want to give me the trophy. But then some of the top cowboys sitting on top of the chute said, no, she had the best ride. Give her the trophy. So that's where it started. And I just got a passion. I love my heart beating fast. I love the adrenaline rush. So I joined the AWRA Association under the name of Deet Lucas, because I thought, well, they won't be able to tell the difference between a boy and a girl with a name like Deet, and started writing. They just thought I was a young ringer. How long did you get away with that for? I only got away with it for a few rodeos and I got caught out at Northern Rodeo in Western Australia. I was actually busting for a pee and I couldn't go to the men's toilet and I couldn't go to the women's toilet because I looked like a boy. So I went out behind the back of a stock truck right out that was parked right out the back and had a squat. And the stock contractor came around the front of the truck and saw me squatting and went to the shoot boss and told the shoot boss that I was a girl. And then they came out and said, you can't ride. It's against the rules. You're not allowed to compete against any of the men. And I asked them then, could I do an exhibition ride? And they sort of tossed that idea around a bit and then agreed to it. So I rode a big steer out of the chutes at that rodeo. I had a good ride and stayed time. Got a really good ovation from the crowd, but the judges refused to score me on it because I was a woman. Did that make you mad? It didn't make me angry, but it just made me a bit more determined to do what I wanted to do and make it happen. Yeah, as soon as I moved to North Queensland, the anti-discrimination laws had come in, so I was actually allowed to nominate and compete, and that's where it started. I started up at Mareeba Rodeo. I went there just to look one day, and I was in a pair of little shorts and a, a top, and I had a wind cheater in the car. So I went up to the stand and asked them if I was able to compete and they said, yeah, if you buy a day ticket, you can for insurance. So I went down and I looked around at a few cowboys and saw one that looked about my height and my size and asked him if I could borrow his jeans and his boots. And he said, why? And I, I said, oh, I really want to hop on one of these balls. And he said, well, I've got to see this. I rode one out of the chutes. I only stayed about seven seconds on that one. But I was happy enough with the ride. But up at the bar, I had a lot of men say to me, you're the first woman I've ever seen ride in any of these events.
0: ABC Australia Wide.
9: country people can't be
8: discriminated against. Not entourment. They were homesick, you know, the poor little
2: lumps. A flood is a flood and a fire is a fire and a drought
8: is a drought.
0: You're listening to ABC Australia Wide on ABC Radio.
1: Let's head to South Australia now to the rural community of Panola in the south east, which was home to one of Australia's most important polar explorers, John Riddick Rymel. Liz Rymel brings you this story from South Australia.
4: The small rural community of Panola in South Australia's south-east is known for wine grapes and being the home of Australia's first saint, Mary MacKillop, but also as the home of the late polar explorer John Riddick Rymall, the last person to change the map of the world when he and his crew established the existence of the Antarctic Peninsula. He's the subject of a new book written by his son, author and historian Peter Rymall. Early a century on from his father's expeditions, he says it was his country upbringing that helped him go on to become one of the world's most significant polar explorers.
7: He was slightly dyslexic and his mother thought he was less intelligent than his elder brother. So I think he had something to prove to himself. And at the same time, when he was at school, the Antarctic heroes of Scott and Shackleton and Mawson were doing their things. So I think that was the inspiration to, to go further afield.
4: By age 18 John Rymel set sail for England to design his own course of tertiary education for the makings of a polar explorer.
7: He did the basic things like learning to ski and mountaineer and sail small boats and then took it to another level At the Royal Geographical Society he did their surveying and navigation course which was getting pretty exciting then because they were using radios for the first time to ascertain longitude. His big breakthrough was what he learnt from the Eskimos in East Greenland because of course they'd been living in these polar conditions as part of everyday life for eons. knew exactly how to do it. Perhaps he, being another colonial, they were a colony of Denmark, appreciated their strengths more than Europeans did and was only too ready to learn from him and he acquired great wisdom from them.
4: John Rymel's ultimate goal was to explore the east coast of Graham Land, there ought to be an archipelago, the last major geographical feature on the Earth's surface still to defy human discovery. In an excerpt from a 1967 ABC interview for the program This Wide World, John Rimel recounted memories
9: of his polar explorations. I had been criticised in England for deciding against taking a professional crew, but instead to run the panola with a scientific staff, apart from a young naval officer who had been appointed by the Admiralty as my sailing master. However, my amateur crew proved their worth, for in two years and eleven months, they maintained and sailed the Panola 26,896 miles, of which 15,500 miles were under sail alone. We had our moments, of course. The voyage was reasonably uneventful, though in the big and stormy sea south of Cape Horn, we did find it advisable to rig a tarpaulin behind the helmsman at the open wheel, so that he couldn't look over his shoulder and see great hills of foaming water bearing down on the ship. 15 days after we left Port Stanley, we sighted at Graham Land. We eventually worked down the coast for about 300 miles and we established a base far into country which had never before been seen. 88 years on from
4: his father's Antarctic voyage, Peter Rymel hopes Australia's next generation of explorers might take inspiration from his father's work.
7: I think it's also worth telling in that Anyone can do anything if they want to enough, and that's certainly what he did. And it'd be nice if if his endeavours provided an example for other youngsters to do similarly exciting things.
1: That's Peter Rymal ending that story. He's just written about his father, a pioneering Antarctic explorer, John Riddick Rymal. And that's Australia Wide for this week. My name is Gianfranco Di Giovanni. Thank you so much for joining me. Remember, you can podcast the show or listen back to the program through the ABC Listen app by visiting the Australia Web website. Just search for ABC Australia Wide. Ciao for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.